picture it, Delmarva, 1977. You're a waterman and you need to be out on your boat to harvest oysters, but there is nothing but ice on the landscape. Or you're a tourist who decides to visit Ocean City in the off-season to get a better taste of the ambiance and visit some of the shops that are usually really crowded during the summer. But as you're walking along the beach, there's nothing. No sound, no waves crashing, just ice. Hi everyone, welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson and I'll be your host as we explore this event that took place in early winter 1977. And just to be clear, when I say early winter, I'm talking about the time of year, which would be January to February. This was known as the deep freeze. Now, Delmarva is not pretty well known for harsh winters, but occasionally they do happen. Normally, the most that we get are strong nor'easters, which in and of themselves, I'm actually more concerned about because of the wind that comes along with them, as well as the fact that it's rain and rain would normally freeze. So that's just my opinion on matters, but I would much rather drive in the snow than in any type of sleet or ice. So today's episode will be a little bit different in that I'm not going to explore one major event where a number of people are injured or killed at one particular time. This is more of a historical episode to look at some events that have happened on Delmarva, which by going through this particular event, I found out a lot about the history of mainly the Chesapeake Bay and the winters that are sometimes experienced in the area. Now, what brought me to this topic was looking at a documentary about an event that actually took place on the western side of Maryland on the Potomac River. And this is the Air Florida flight that crashed into the Potomac in 1982. I may do a full episode of that on my Mystifyingly Missing True Crime podcast. It covers more than just, you know, missing persons or true crime. It just has a very long title, so I'm just going to refer to it as Mystifyingly Missing. Um, But the crash that I'm referring to Um, took place as the pilots were not as familiar with flying in, you know, winter conditions and weren't really familiar with, you know, what the icing would do on the wings as well as, you know, other components of that, such as, you know, what was the appropriate amount of time to wait between the icing. So they had a, you know, a time period where they had to wait should they have a de-icer um, come out and take care of the ice on the wings. But the pictures that come into my mind are of the Potomac covered in ice, 
But of course, you know, even if it's a very thick sheet of ice, when you have a plane crashing into it, it was not quite as sturdy to take that impact. And unfortunately, almost everyone on board either succumbed to injuries or drowned, as well as dealing with the cold. Um, you know, it was just a horrific experience for all those involved and they, nobody could get to those on the plane. So, so that I'm not spending the whole episode talking about that flight, just what brought into, um, brought into my mind as far as thoughts went was, you know, seeing that big body of water in this general area being that frozen. You know, we really don't see that. So I started, you know, like Googling for winter storms. And what I actually found was in 1977, the Chesapeake Bay froze over. And the Potomac actually, um, it's one of the rivers that is fed by the Chesapeake Bay. So that actually had a correlation to what I was looking into but the Chesapeake Bay has not just frozen over in 1977. There has been at least seven different instances that's, that are known where the bay has frozen over. So these are just, you know, events that we've seen in recent history where it's been recorded that it froze over. This is not going back hundreds of years before then. The area does experience what um, many will call a deep freeze or severe freeze about once every century, even though that's kind of debatable as the dates um, of some of the events seem to be happening less than once a century. But I did find reference to 1780, 1899, and 1977, of course. Getting into a few more specifics, there were other time periods where um, the winter was seen as severely cold, but also where there was reflection on the fact that there are extremes in the weather conditions from one season to another, as well as one year to another. So in 1635, um, I found a quote from someone that said, it was reported that, quote, this last winter was the coldest that has been known in many years, but the year before there was scarce any sign of winter, only that the leaves fell from the trees and all other things it appeared to be summer, end quote. And then going back to the mid-1930s and looking at the temperatures, you know, of that time period, it was extremely cold in the winters of 1934 and 35, but the summer of 1936 saw record-breaking heat. But again, 1936 was around the time period where there was yet another deep freeze. In 1918, the bay did freeze as well in January, but in August of that same year, it was 105 degrees in Baltimore. So yes, that is on the other side of, of the bay, 
but sometimes in reference to certain things, there's not always, you know, a lot of information specifically about Delmarva. I do sometimes refer to Baltimore or other parts of the Western Shore to get a general idea of weather or other conditions at the time period. But I did find um, the temperature in Easton, which is on the Eastern Shore, and that was, um, this particular temperature is from 1898. It was 100 degrees in July, but negative 15 degrees seven months later. So again, we can see that there are vast swings in, you know, the temperatures that we see. Going back to now 1977, there were pictures that I saw of the bay and they just kind of amazed me. So before I get too much further into those, I do just want to go over a few things that I normally cover at the beginning of each episode. One is the topics that I do cover may sometimes include discussions of injury, death, or harm to others. While I won't have many specific cases in this particular episode, it is overall something that occurs in most episodes or events that I cover. Also, as this is a more historical event, um, many of the articles that I found were in archive sites. And as such, this, this particular site was a pay site. So what I do, and this is what I've done in the past as well, is put the link to this um, particular article, the name of the newspaper, and the date. So that way, if you have access to those new paper, newspapers in other ways, such as a particular subscription, you will be able to go in and view those. There are, though, a couple of articles that, you know, were more recent where it was retelling um, some of the events of this summer. Also, um, as I mentioned, the, um, the site that I used was a pay site, and that really is one of the um, sites that I use quite often. And also, there are sometimes other expenses occurred, not as much with this particular episode, but in other types of research or just upkeep in, in terms of equipment, um, the podcast hosting site. So I do have a link to a PayPal or buy me a coffee account. If anybody would like to donate towards those costs, I definitely don't expect it as I'll continue to, you know, do these episodes, but there may sometimes be periods of time then where I'm, I might not be referring to, um, the pay site that I normally use or any of the other sites, um, you know, that I may come across where, unfortunately, even though everything's electronic, we need to um, incur a cost to go onto those sites or get that information. So with that being said, let's get back into the episode. So as I mentioned, I had seen a number of pictures which amazed me and one of the pictures, I think the first one I actually saw, there were kids playing out on the Chesapeake Bay and the ice. And 
you know, I'm definitely not used to seeing that. Even the much smaller rivers or bodies of water around where I live, even little ponds don't normally freeze over. The most that we might see is a very light layer of ice on top, but definitely not something where anybody should be walking out on the ice, even if they're, you know, a child that doesn't weigh as much. But there were, there were kids sledding on some pictures that I saw. Um, ice skating was quite prevalent. So, you know, the the bay and any of the other rivers surrounding it were actually frozen solid enough that parents were like, yes, you can go out and play on this humongous body of water, which has now frozen over. And most likely, um, many of the parents had not seen a deep freeze before. So to me, this shows a level of security in how deep or thick the ice was. And this was not only in Delmarva. I'm not going to go too much into other areas because that's not you know, normally the focus of um, this podcast, but the Ohio River um, in some parts froze over for the first time in 30 years. Um, there were parts of the Great Lakes and Mississippi River either freezing over or they were bottlenecked so that even if a particular area um, was not frozen over, if ships were trying to get past, they couldn't because there were kind of a there's kind of a log jam of ice. So that really hindered transportation. And overall, the United States and even the world, we still rely on shipping um, as a major way to transport, you know, a vast amount of goods. And this does also include gas and heating oil. So there were emergency, you know, situations where people were having issues getting the oil that they need. You know, energy companies across the nation were experiencing problems, even with President Carter coming on TV and asking people to conserve um, their energy, their oil, because of the impact that the deep freeze was having just across the nation. Now, I've mentioned quite a few times about how big the body of water is. And the Chesapeake Bay is the largest estuary in the United States and the third largest in the world. Um, according to Maryland.gov, an estuary is, quote, a semi-enclosed coastal body of water with a free connection to the open sea where fresh water from inland rivers mixes with salt water from the ocean, end quote. So looking at Delmarva, we have um, the western shore, you know, Baltimore, um, Frederick, Maryland, um, Hagerstown, those cities on the other side of the bay. Then we have Delmarva, and it's the Chesapeake Bay that makes Delmarva a peninsula, and the Chesapeake Bay and Atlantic kind of feed into each other. And then along with that, we have um, some of the rivers that I've mentioned, Nanticoke, Wicomico, um, 
Potomac is the one that I was mentioning with the plane crash. And the Potomac is actually one of the areas where the Chesapeake Bay is at its widest. The bay is approximately 200 miles long. And at some points, it can be um, much shorter or not as wide at about 2.8 miles. And then at the Potomac, um, it's about 30 miles wide. So it's not a tiny body of water by any means. So that's why, I, again, I was just amazed by that. But also, there's moving water. It's not like the water is just standing. There is movement between the bay and the ocean. So that's another factor that I was thinking about in terms of the actual freeze and how, you know, cold it must have gotten to stop, you know, the water from moving. Now, some of the rivers that I've mentioned had up to 12 inches of ice, making it pretty, you know, secure in terms of walking on it. But this ice could also cause barges and tugboats to run aground. The Coast Guard had to intervene and stop all deliveries to the lower part of the shore unless it was an absolute emergency. There were icebreaker barges that came in per the Coast Guard request, but at least initially they were more focused on the Baltimore Harbor. That's, you know, as the name implies, it's a harbor. It's where a lot of freight, goods that come into the area, that's their entry point. So um, the icebreakers were concentrated on making sure the goods that needed to get into the harbor were being received, which eventually those goods would probably get to the eastern shore. But you know, there were more immediate concerns that those on Delmarva, you know, needed to address, such as fuel oil, but had to wait for those icebreakers. In some areas, the CND or Chesapeake and Delaware Canal being one of them, the Coast Guard had to limit um, the direction in which boats or ships were going. So I'm just kind of imagining um, the shipping lane was down to one lane. So think about being on a road where you know, there's two lanes, one going in each direction, and you have a flagger, you know, directing people to come through from one side, but that means the other side has to wait. That's pretty much what this was, but on a much grander scale where you had these boats had to wait for others coming in the other direction to get through. So I wonder, you know, what type of provisions they had in place such as, you know, were there maps about where each ship was? Um, did the ships know before they entered how long they might have to wait and that type of thing? Now, something that had an impact on some of the ships that were in the area were buoys. And, you know, I think buoys are something that we see out on the water and don't necessarily think about too much in regards to what they actually do. But they are out there for navigation, um, to give warnings, you know, where things, um, where the water might be more shallow, if there's any 
sandbars or things like that. But some of the buoys actually got so cold that they, for lack of any better term, exploded. And that means they sunk. Others were actually moved away from where they would normally be. And this led to some barges actually running aground of most concern for a couple of different reasons. Um, the ATC-185 was an oil barge, and that ran aground in Tangier Sound. There was also another barge named the Interstate 17, as well as the tug that was escorting it in named the Quaker. They also ran aground. Now, the ATC-185 had 18,000 barrels of fuel oil on board where the Interstate 17 was carrying 14,500 the ice that surrounded these ships were up to nine inches thick in some places. And with them running aground, there was kind of a twofold danger. One is, you know, the fuel oil that they were carrying, that wasn't going to be able to get to the people that needed it most. But also, what if any of those barrels started to leak? What if, you know, the boats began to sink? you would be looking at a much wider felt natural, I'm sorry, not a natural disaster, but um, an eco disaster if that oil started to spill out. And there had been even um, the year before where there was a spill of petroleum products. So of course the Coast Guard cutters tried to reach these ships um, to try to lend assistance, but could not get through the ice. So besides the ice, um, they had to, the Coast Guard also had to worry about the shallowness of some of the water and trying to communicate to any ships that were coming in. The fact that the buoys were not, you know, actually navigationally correct at the moment with some of them being gone completely. Another boat that ran aground was in the Tangier Sound and the boat was called the Independence it was carrying 1,000 telephone poles. So just think about how heavy that had to be. I didn't see any um, you know, tonnage or weight for the boat, but it became grounded and it was blocked in at an area near Deal Island. And just kind of as a side note, Okay. I had a former boyfriend for a while and he lived on Deal Island, so I pretty familiar, um, at least with the landscape of it in the early 2000s. Um, it really is quite remote to get from the island to um, a main road, at least the way I drive. I've mentioned before I drive slow. It was probably a good 20 minutes, um, but at times there could be water standing on the roads or getting very close to it. So... You know, the, the island was pretty much just kind of blocked in. And then you have this boat that comes aground in the area that has a thousand telephone poles. I mean, that just kind of added to, you know, the situation that the Coast Guard was having to deal with. Um, yes, the Coast Guard is a big presence, even though we don't always see them, uh, but we're surrounded by water. Then when this type of incident occurs, they have so many different areas, not only, you know, the main larger waterways, but things like this 
in making sure that this particular boat, you know, doesn't sink, hopefully, um, or any of the boats that run aground or were damaged, as well as making sure other boats can get through and keeping the supply chain going, especially as supplies could be dwindling um, the longer that the deep freeze went on. The independents, the one with the telephone poles, it was reported that they were taking on water. They were using at least seven pumps just to try to keep it afloat. Um, the only thing I'm hoping and thinking about it is because there was so much ice, hopefully the flow of the water um, underneath the ice was slower so that they could keep up with the seven pumps. The Coast Guard did try to get through, um, hoping that with the high tide that the independents would, you know, possibly raise up and help get them afloat again. But the Coast Guard was not able to get through to lend any other assistance to the independent independence, I'm sorry. Beginning on January 14th, the Coast Guard began to cut off access to the other rivers, um, such as the Nanticoke and the Wicomico. And that was being preemptive in that they didn't want boats to go through and get stuck. But as we'll see, um, there were some instances such as if a boat was carrying oil that they would allow a boat to come through. You know, it was just kind of, you know, something that was needed. So, of course, they had to make um, a decision at that point and certain types of boats were allowed to go through. Now, I mentioned before how the pictures just kind of got to me. And another one that I found from January 14th was a number of oyster boats that were kind of all huddled together. They were, you know, just trying to get into an area of water that hadn't frozen over. And these boats are families' livelihoods, whether it's the owner of the boat, whether they employ other people that, you know, help with, you know, in this case, it would be the oysters um, that they would be going out to get, but they're a livelihood. And if the boats are damaged, it's not just an inconvenience, you know, of someone who uses the boat as a pleasure craft, it is their job. And to have a boat out of commission can be very detrimental. And then if that boat is damaged in any way and has to be fixed, that just kind of compounds the issue and that they need to wait for it to be repaired. So just imagine looking out onto the body of water that you're usually you know, sailing on to bring in oysters and you know, in the summer to bring in crabs and other seafood but you can't even move the boat at this time. And you just see all the other boats around you in that same situation. By January 15th, part of the aforementioned Baltimore Harbor had frozen over. And if anything could convince me that the harbor does affect the supply chain on the Eastern shore and even to other places, we experienced that to a lesser extent in 2022, when a boat was blocking, um, you know, part of the harbor, and this was the same from the same company of the boat or ship that blocked the Suez Canal. So, mm, Evergreen 
Marine Corp. Yeah. Um, they were not having a good 2020s to that point. Um, I'm sure we all remember the Suez Canal blockage for six days where the boat just kind of got jammed in there while they were also blocking um, part of the Chesapeake Bay near Baltimore for a while. So that even affected things around here as um, for a while, one of the stores that we go into quite often, my husband and I, they were just running out of everything. You would walk in and like shelves would be empty. And one of the employees there told us that, yeah, they weren't getting, you know, all of their shipments in because of this ship that was blocking part of the Chesapeake Bay. So that just kind of put that in perspective about what it must have been like in 1977 as well. Something interesting that I saw um, from an article from January 16th was about the use of equipment called bubblers. Now, just when I saw that name, I had a feeling of what it was going to be, and it was, in fact, what I thought, um, how I've been mentioning the movement of water. In marinas, um, some marinas were using this equipment called bubblers that would basically move the water around, you know, with the term bubblers you know, being used to you know, show that the water was bubbling up. So unfortunately, it could not be used on more of a large scale um, usage. You know, there was no way to put that many bubblers across the CND Canal or in the Chesapeake Bay. But at least in terms of some of the boats that were um, anchored in the marina or tied up in a marina, some were using these bubblers to help keep the ships safe. So, you know, hopefully that had a positive impact, especially for those who use their um, boats as their livelihood. The Coast Guard also began to limit now, instead of on the CND Canal, ships going in one direction at a time, they began to limit ships to those that had a minimum of 500 horsepower. That's about what they considered to be safe um, because they wanted to make sure the ships had enough power and ability to get in and out of the canal. As this deep freeze moved on, people who had, you know, chimneys or fireplaces would begin to use those, of course, um, especially if they were running low on the oil. But unfortunately, there were some chimney fires that began to take place. So that also then, you know, drained some resources of people who may have been out trying to help those who were stuck in their vehicles or, you know, other events that may have been occurring. And looking at the islands that dot um, the area, we have just to name a few, Deal Island, Tangier, Smith, which is famous for their very good multi-layer cake. Look it up if you haven't seen it before. Um, very thin layers. Don't know how they get them that thin. But people from the islands are a very hardy stock. Um, you know, they do have to depend on just themselves in some situations. Sometimes it becomes necessary to use boats for transportation because, you know, again, water can be very um, high with the tides and you might not be able to get on or off the island. Actually, another island, Elliot's Island, 
I had family that lived there and they did move back to what I'm going to call the mainland. But part of that reason was because of concerns about what would happen in a medical emergency. You know, in some situations, helicopters could get through if the roads were blocked. But again, there were a lot of resources at this particular time that, you know, were being extended more than usual. So that could cause a delay in being able to even get to one of the islands that needed the medical attention. Now, many of the islanders at this time, they did have a good supply of a lot of things. Um, Around mid-January, many people were reporting they had at least two weeks worth of items to help keep them going, um, but they were kind of getting low on the perishable items. So they may have had enough, you know, dry goods, canned goods, but things like milk and eggs were getting kind of low, as well as the overall concern about heating oil. Something that is unique to these islands as well is that sometimes the children would need to take a boat to get to school. Now, in reading some quotes, um, one of them from a more recent article, someone who was a child at that time said that she remembers they still had to go to school, whereas I read other articles that said that schools were closed. It may have been just a matter of, you know, if it was a day or two or three, um, the schools remained open, but as, you know, time passed, they decided to close. Um, So the boats were not running to get the kids to school. And, you know, another thought I had about opening schools was conserving heating oil because, you know, if you had to heat this entire school, a large building, it would take a lot to do so. So in order to, you know, maintain or keep the fuel level or the heating oil levels as high as possible, then um, it may have been more prudent to close the schools. Getting back to kind of the topic again of fuel or heating oil, as that was a very major concern, the Coast Guard did ask for an ice or icebreaker to work around Smith Island, but at some point it did have to be reallocated towards the Wicomico River because there was a boat trying to get into an oil storage site that was near Salisbury, and they needed access to the Wicomico. So even though the Coast Guard had wanted the icebreaker to work around the islands, it was rerouted to look at the broader picture of making sure people had um, oil for heat. And with everything that was happening at this time, there were a few people who had experienced another deep freeze in 1936, And, you know, they were making comparisons um, between the two. In 1936, some people had found that it was actually easier to get around because it was actually more frozen in some areas. People could actually um, walk across from the islands to the mainland to get supplies, whereas that was not quite the case in every area around some of the islands in 1977. In 1936, it was about four months where ice had surrounded the islands, but people would walk across the river um, and then would use skiffs to get through 
some areas that might not have frozen completely over. And for some reason, this I get this image in my mind of um, expeditions to you know the different poles where people were um, sailors would use the boats more of a sl- as a sled. You know they would put equipment in there, supplies, and kind of pull that across the ice. And I can almost see that here, where you know people were just walking across the ice. It was that thick. But you know, needed something to pull supplies in. I didn't find any mention that the boats were used for supplies other than just normal, um, you know, ferrying of the supplies. But when they mentioned the skiffs in the article, that's just kind of the first image that came to my mind, at least. But of course, as time went by, things did begin to get back to normal. The freeze started to wear off. Water started to melt. I'm sorry, I started to melt and you know, people were able to get a little bit back into their day-to-day lives. There were people, I'm sure, that you know, had to worry about getting their boats um, repaired if there had been any damage from the ice. Um, oyster prices had gone up to $10 a bushel, which is about $50 now, and that was considered to be extremely high at the time. Environmental concerns would be making sure wildlife um, were taken care of, those that had been injured, as well as looking at the environmental impact of any of the oil tankers or you know any of the boats that may have leaked oil into the waterways. And while I could not find any numbers on you know the number of deaths that may have been attributed to the deep freeze, whether it be to car accidents or something I could find unimaginable, somebody freezing to death, either because of a car accident and being trapped or not having enough oil in their home, because, of course, the prices would have gone up for oil as well. The only numbers I found is one mention of a car accident on Delmarva and in an article from Ohio about a man who perished in his home because of the cold. So I'm sure there were others that I didn't see in any articles or that weren't specifically mentioned, but those, you know, again, are some of the things we may not think about. The fact that somebody actually would die not that long ago, but we still see it today, whether it's not having, you know, the funds to pay for oil right then and there. So you have to kind of put it off, but then something like this happens. Or afterwards, some you know from an event like this, the prices may go up. So these are things again that we don't think about all the time. But in a matter of days, that could change, and people are put in this situation. To end on kind of a coincidental note, and this is a little more light as compared to some of the other parts of this story. Um, A few episodes ago, I went over a train crash where um, there was also a lot of mention in newspaper articles about other trains going to the inauguration. This was in the early 1900s. In looking through articles about this, and this is going to Pennsylvania, so I apologize, but, um, you know, again, it just kind of showed how cold it was. A band was set to 
um, play in the inauguration. But they were concerned because they were worried that their instruments would be too cold. And it's not something you would necessarily think of right away. But thinking back, you know, I played clarinet and we didn't really have a big marching band or anything like that um, at my school. But, you know, I can remember, you know, some of the times we did march and say the Christmas parade that, yeah, the keys could get cold. And that could also then mean it would affect the timber of the instrument, especially if it was a metal instrument. So, you know, again, something that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of right away, but this is something that, you know, a high school band dreams of, you know, being able to go to an inauguration and play. And now people were concerned about not only being able to get there safely and making sure they could get around okay, but would their instruments even work once they got there and work properly so that, you know, nothing was off key. So I just did find that a little coincidental, you know, that in two stories kind of close together, um, I found articles about the inauguration and, you know, again, just something interesting I found. I don't know if anybody else finds it interesting, but I did. Um, So I want to thank everybody for sticking in with me on this episode. I do have um, like most of the research done for a couple of other episodes. I just need to kind of put everything into a logical order um, before I get those recorded. Sometimes it's not a matter of being able to do the research that causes um, me to sometimes be a little late getting an episode up. It's actually having the time where things are quiet, where I can record so that you're not hearing, you know, the kids yelling in the background or um, my husband who tends to be very loud. That's just his natural talking voice. And sometimes I've even heard him um, from the other side of the wall. So, um, so this summer, I am not sure what the schedule will be like, but um, I've said this before and I really do try um, to get a little bit ahead so that even if there is a time period where, you know, I may not be able to record that week, I'll still have episodes that I've recorded to upload So with that, again, I just want to thank everybody for listening. And, you know, if you can, please share the podcast or leave a comment or rating if your platform allows that to kind of get the the podcast out there. Um, If you do have any suggestions for a case, Facebook Messenger is probably the quickest way to get to me um, as far as a, a particular case. I do try to just scan through newspaper articles, um, especially some that are more archived because those cases are completed and we have more information. So I do scan through those to try to get ideas. But if anybody has, you know, something specific that they may know about that I, you know, haven't covered yet, please let me know and I'll talk to everybody soon. Thanks.